Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1321, Dante Alighieri died in the city of Ravenna, near the shores of the Adriatic. In the years since his perpetual exile from his native Florence, he had lived in a variety of places in Italy. Now he was at last at rest. But in future centuries, even his bones would continue to move, although not as far as his body had moved in life. And as his body diminished in its physical mass, his influence and legacy grew and grew, sometimes appearing in the oddest of places. Ultimately, the history of Dante's bones is the history of the idea of Italy. Guy Rafa has written histories of Dante's legacy, appropriately titled Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy. He is Associate Professor of Italian Studies at the University of Texas, and among other achievements, has created the brilliant and wonderful Dante World's website, which is an integrated multimedia journey, combining artistic images, textual commentary, and audio recordings of the three realms of the afterlife found in Dante's Divine Comedy. Guy Rafa, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for inviting me, Al, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I just want to say this is great timing because, um, as you know, we're coming up on the 700th anniversary of Dante's death in, uh, in 2021, next September. And so this is the year of Dante. There are many, many Dante events going on uh, starting this, this past September when the president of Italy went to Ravenna to visit Dante's tomb. And so we are right in the thick of it. Well, I, I suspect that has something to do with the publication of your book. You know, uh, it, it's worked out that way, but <laughs> as we'll talk about it, I started it 10 years ago, so I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I knew at that moment, but it, it's worked yeah. out really well. It worked out really well. Um, yeah, so, and we're going to have all, this is going to be probably the most jam-packed show notes of any podcast in Historically Thinking History, given the materials that you have. Okay. So, but let's get to it. Um, very well-educated people know the name of Dante. Uh, they know there's this divine comedy thing, but I've often discovered that these same well-educated people believe that uh, it's all about hell, uh, the, and they are not sure why something about hell is called a comedy, and so it's all very confusing. So could we begin with a brisk review of Dante, his life and times, and then we'll move on to talk about, again, briskly, the great epic that he created. Absolutely, Alan. And, and just interrupt me or ask if anything needs clarification. So yes, Dante is famous for his divine comedy. The hell, hell is, or the inferno is just the first of the three parts. The other two parts being um, Purgatorio, Purgatory, and Paradiso, Paradise or Heaven. Uh, Dante first, though. He's born 1265 in Florence, Italy, and he dies 1321 in Ravenna, hence the, coming up on the 700th anniversary. He dies in September in uh, 1321. And uh, the key, I guess, the key thing to know about Dante uh, in terms of his life and times is that in 1302, uh, he is exiled from his home city of Florence for political reasons, which we can get into as we go through the conversation, and he will never return. So uh, for those last uh, years, many years, over uh, 20 years of Dante's life, he will be in exile, uh, 14, 15, we're not sure how many different places in Italy, perhaps even out of Italy. Uh, as far as uh, Paris, according to Boccaccio and some other people, but he will eventually end up in the last two to three years of his life in Ravenna, which, uh, as you said, is on the 
uh, Adriatic coast of Italy, uh, south of Venice. And that's where he will spend the last few years of his life and eventually die, probably from malaria uh, at age uh, 56. So that's uh, that's Dante's uh, very, very brief <laughs> lifetime. So what was his life like prior to exile? So, I mean, the, the Alieri, were they a, a noble family? Were they a merchant family? Uh, what had he been doing? Had he, had he been a poet before? Had he been a knight? What was his what was his life like? Lots of different things. It's a complicated story. Unfortunately, we don't have all of the facts. And that's why biographies of Dante are notoriously um lacking in, in some of that specificity and, and filled with a lot of conjecture. But we do know that he was born to a family that was doing okay. His father probably owned some property outside the city. Uh, they might have had some sort of a noble, minor noble standing in generations past, but not so much in Dante's day. Um, his parents die young. His mother, I think, when he's just about nine or 10 years old, and uh, his father remarries, but then his father dies before Dante's 18. Uh, Dante is a poet from an early age. We know that he's probably starting to write poems uh, as an 18 or 19 year old, they're, they're uh, poems that you might imagine a fraternity kid would write today. They're, <laughs> they're, they're a bit off color. And he actually refers to that in the purgatory when he meets one of his old, his old buddies from that, uh, that period of his life. And they, uh, they regret some of the things that they did in their, in their youth. Um, uh, then he meets the love of his life, Beatrice, Beatrice, who will become a major character in the Divine Comedy. Uh, he says he writes a little book called The New Life, the Vita Nuova. Uh, which is a combination of some of these uh, lyric poems, many of them sonnets, and some prose. And it's basically his reconstruction of this early uh, period of his life. He, he says he saw Beatrice when he was, uh, she was nine years old, um, and, uh, and that was sort of this, uh, this, great, uh, this great moment. Uh, and then he sees her again when she's 18, and sadly she dies very young. She dies in 1290 at age 24, and that marks this great a moment of devastation in Dante's life, but he basically commits himself to her and that he will one day write something worthy of her now that she is in heaven, which we, of course, take uh, to be what happens later with the Divine Comedy. Uh, so he's a poet, but the other thing is he's a politician. He gets involved in the civic life of the city uh, at a fairly young age, but at the time he's age 30, he's starting to serve on some of the councils as a Guelph. And Guelphs and Ghibellines are these two, uh, these two terms that you know, medieval historians know about. Uh, the Guelphs uh, usually very, very loosely aligned uh, with the side of the papacy, the Pope, and the Ghibellines uh, with the emperor. Uh, by the time we get to Dante's day, the Ghibellines are kind of out of the picture a little bit, at least in terms of Florentine politics. And the Guelphs themselves have split into two factions, uh, the white Guelphs and the black Guelphs. Uh, again, a very complicated story. But Dante, in any case, is associated more with this rising merchant class uh, of, the, uh, of the Corso Donati. Uh, he's the leader of the White Wealth Clan of that branch. And so uh, as, as one of the, the members of that side, he will uh, rise through the, the ranks and eventually serve on the highest uh, council, the, the, the Council of Priors. Uh, they were elected for two-month terms, and they were basically, uh, uh, six of them were uh, from the city, uh, went, went off into seclusion, and they made all of the big decisions in the city. And Dante will say later that that, uh, that period in a letter that, that is now lost, but that we have sort of a, a recollection of, uh, that he that was the beginning or the origin of all of his woes and misery, <laughs> because, <laughs> because the period when he is at the head of the Florentine government will then become the period that will be used against him by his enemies uh, once he is no longer on the government and he will eventually be accused of uh, financial uh, misproprieties and other things, trumped up charges for sure, uh, but any kind of excuse uh, for the black Welfs at that point to sort of get back at the white Welfs. Uh, so that's uh, that's happening all around uh, 1300. Uh, that's the big year when Dante 
uh, is uh, serving on the council. And he will use that year 1300 as the fictional date of the Divine Comedy, the journey that the character Dante will take as we get to the poem, we'll, we'll talk about this uh, through the uh, through the world, the afterworlds, the afterlife uh, will actually take place in 1300, even though he's writing this uh, years after that event. So it's all uh, taking place uh, in, uh, previous to the time when he's writing it. And so uh, he will be uh, he will be at the height of his power in 1300. But by 1301, he is out. And then uh, because the pope of the time and, and we should have some some Darth Vader music uh, play yes, whenever I say Boniface VIII, because he is the arch-villain of the Divine Comedy. But Boniface VIII, in actuality, was a supporter of the Blackwell faction, the enemies of Dante, and he essentially allows them in 1301 to stage a coup. Uh, and so Dante's uh, White Guelph party will be overthrown, while Dante is probably in Rome trying to negotiate with Boniface. And there's a fun story behind that. Dante when they were trying to decide who should try to go to Rome to, to convince the Pope not to do this, Dante basically stood up and said, well, if I go, who stays? If I stay, who goes? In other words, I am indispensable. <laughs> and we take that as a sign of Dante's well-known uh, haughty pride, which he himself acknowledges uh, very openly in the, in the Divine Comedy. In any case, he's probably out of Florence when the coup takes place, but he probably never gets back to Florence. And so uh, from that period, 1301 to 1302, uh, the tides turn. Uh, the coup occurs. Uh, Dante's house is probably ransacked, and he never goes back. and uh, And he's sentenced to exile in these very, very harsh terms. He's told in, in January of 1302 that uh, he needs to return to Florence and pay a hefty fine, or he'll face two years of banishment, uh, etc. He know he's wise enough to know he can't step foot in Florence. This is just a ruse to get him back. Uh, but then a couple of months later, on March 10th. Uh, the uh, the sentence is even harsher. It says, "Now, if we find you, we kill you. <laughs> we burn you until yeah. you die." Is the is the elegant Latin that they use in the in the sentence of exile. So from that point on, uh, Dante will never go back. He he probably hopes to for the you know in, for the first couple of years after it occurs. Uh, his com his uh, compatriots in exile prove to be inept, uh, incompetent, uh, unwise in every foolish way, and he eventually breaks from them as well. And so he will yeah. spend the rest of his life in exile. To underline a couple things, uh, Dante's experience is not unique in medieval Italy, which it was. Mm. Uh, tens, maybe probably hundreds of, of men like Dante uh, suffered exile and banishment and uh, basically threat of being tracked down by a death squad if it was mm. bad enough. If you were like, if you were a Venetian exile, that's probably what you had to look for. <laughs> right. If you were an exile from a, a really efficient uh, state. Mm. Um the other thing is to, to underscore, and especially in the, the, given the nature of your book, it just can't be underscored enough, the nature of his unrequited love or his broken mm -hmm. love affair with Florence. Um, there is um, Florentine, I mean, it, the whole divine comedy throbs with this. Um, the uh, It also throbs uh, with the sense of uh, Roman Republican virtue that Dante had to serve Florence. Uh, I don't think that he could have imagined doing something else mm -hmm. uh, prior to 1300. Maybe he could imagine this afterwards, but not before. Mm -hmm. And yet, despite that service, despite that fealty, despite that love of a son for his ever-nourishing mother, <laughs> the mother has rejected him. She has thrown him away. Um, she is she is threatened now threatens him with death. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this this reversal this reversal is you know it's at the heart of everything it seems to me in yeah. in, in, in even in your whole story i mean up to the, 
as we'll see by the end of our conversation, up to the present moment, (laughs) (laughs) up to late 2020, this reversal is at the heart of both of the Divine Comedy, Dante's surviving life, and Dante's legacy. That's right. That's right. And that's why I say exile is really, I think, the key to to understanding much about Dante, because an exile is somebody who still has a tie to that past, sometimes a nostalgic tie, a very, very strong uh, tie. Dante loves Florence, as you say. At the same time, he's been rejected. And so that is something he has to deal with. And, and there, there, will become a, there will become a moment uh, in Dante's exile when he will call on the emperor of the time, Henry VII of Luxembourg, in whom Dante had great hopes, to actually go and destroy Florence. He says, you know, <laughs> enough of this. You know, they, they, they're yeah. recalcitrant. They're not accepting uh, you and, and what that represents. Uh, go, go knock them out. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, that, but you know, when you read the divine comedy, it, it's, it goes back and forth and, and it's yeah. hard to really say at the end, well, how does he feel? Um, you know, he, he, he certainly always remains, has that tie uh, to, to his past and to Florence. He never sort of breaks this continuity uh, more than that breakage. That's why I always say Dante is not like St. Augustine. You know, St. Mm-hmm. Augustine has this conversion where he has to slay his old life, right, to enter yeah. into this new life. Dante doesn't do that. I mean, and, and it's made probably one of the reasons uh, St. Augustine doesn't get the respect maybe some of the other saints do in the Divine Comedy. Um, but uh, Dante's mode is more uh, one of, uh, of both and, you know, this continuity. Yeah. It, the only thing I could compare it to is the psalmists who mm. can, you know, cry out for vengeance. May you crush their, maybe their babies be crushed against rocks. <laughs> right. And then in the next verse, have you know, uh, Lord? You know, have mercy on us. Uh, <laughs> and move to a different, completely different register. That's right. Both completely authentic human emotions delivered at different beats of the heart. Right. right. Um, and that's Dante. Yeah. Yeah. So, should I say a couple of words about the Divine Comedy? Just yeah. Quickly? Let's talk about why. First of all, why is it why is it called a comedy? Oh, right. Right. So, uh, and that's what Dante calls it. Actually, he doesn't call it divine. So that comes. Boccaccio will be the first to actually use that word in his biography, and then later it gets picked up in some of the early printed editions. So that's why today, when we go to a bookstore or go to buy it online, we'll see Divine Comedy. But Dante says it's the comedy, you know, and they, they have these long titles written by the Florentine Dante Alighieri, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Comedy in the in the classical sense, going back to Aristotle's definitions of comedy and tragedy. Right. Tragedy is when um, you know, you start off in a pretty good place, but it goes bad and it goes <laughs> south from there. And comedy, just the opposite. So he's not, it's not comedy, uh, ha ha, funny comedy. It's comedy in the sense of starting in a very dark place. And in fact, the, uh, the poem famously begins uh, in the middle of this selva oscura, this shadowed or this dark wood or this dark forest, but it ends up in a good place. And so by the end, when we get to paradise, Dante will have a, he'll be reunited with Beatrice and he will have this uh, this kind of uh, mystical uh, vision uh, encounter with God Himself. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's the, the it, it starts the arc of the theme from from very from bad to, to very from bad good. to worse right. from from bad to worse to yeah. very good to very good. Ultimate. So that's yeah. the technical why it's called the comedy. But you're absolutely right; that could cause a lot of confusion. Though I should say there are some funny moments in the Divine Comedy where yeah, you know, traditional modern notions of comedy would probably hold as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, like the sluggards when he first encountered them in purgatory. I think that just, it's just hilarious. I think right. it's hilarious, but right, right. not, not many of my students agree. I think it's just very funny. Well, wow, it's a very uh, Um, so could you approve something to me? Um, yes. uh, maybe to our, 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 our listeners, mm-hmm. uh, I remember reading long before I read Dante, T.S. Eliot saying that uh, even if you don't know Italian mm. and you read Dante's Italian, you know he's a great poet. And I mm. thought, well, you prissy little snob. <laughs> of course, of course, you'd say something like that. I mean, that whatever that means, that's right. ridiculous. Yeah. But then I tried it, and it was true. And so, yeah, that's why T.S. Eliot's a great poet. 
and I'm not. So, um, so could you uh, yeah. just pick a canto and, and read uh, several st- stanzas to your heart's content? So I don't even have it in front of me, but I'm going to do it anyway. So that's okay. All right. that's okay. So I'm going to jump ahead to Canto Five, which is a very famous canto of uh, Paolo and Francesca uh, in, the cir- in the Circle of Lust. So it's the second circle of hell, uh, but it's actually the first circle in which we have punished sin because the first circle is technically limbo, which uh, if you're going to be in hell, that's where you want to be. You know, that's where the worst that you have to do is uh, endure hours of lecturing by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. So not, not too bad. Uh, but anyway, the next circle is uh, the circle of lust, and eventually uh, Dante meets uh, Francesca of Rimini, and she tells her story. And the story is how, how she was basically uh, uh, forced to marry somebody she didn't want, did not want to marry for political reasons, thinking that she was going to marry the very handsome, elegant uh, brother, Paolo. And sure enough, she and Paolo will have a love affair uh, after the marriage. We'll get caught in flagrante by the uh, by the jealous husband, and we'll get uh, killed and die uh, die a brutal death that way. And and so they appear actually together in the uh, in the poem. And so uh, when Dante sees them in Canto Five, and Al, if you have an English translation, you could you could read some of it. But when uh, Francesca tells her story, uh, she says how we were reading one day. So I'm going to read it in Italian. So I, I, go, go for it. Noi leggevamo un giorno pediletto di lanciolotto come morlo strinse. Soli eravamo e senza alcun stretto. Per più fiate gli occhi ci sostinse quelle letture e scolorocci il viso, ma solo un punto fu quel che ci vinse. Quando leggemmo desiato riso, esser baciato da tanto amante, questi che mai da me non fie diviso, la bocca mi baciò tutto tramante. Galeotto fu libro e chi lo scrisse, col giorno più noi leggemmo avanti. E mentre che l'uno spirito questo disse, L'altro piangea, sì, che di piedade, io venni me, così come io volisse. E caddi, come corpo morto cadde. That last line, so this is, maybe this is getting Tiaselli. Those are the last lines of Canto V, when, when Francesca says, we were reading one day of Lancelot, uh, and how, uh, and, and he's, the story of Lancelot and Guinevere, and how these two lovers come to kiss, and reading that causes her and Paolo to actually act on that desire. And then that, she says, uh, Gallagher was the book. Do you have the English there? I don't even know. Uh, yeah. All I remember is that day, <laughs> that, we, day we, that day we read no more. We read no more. And that's wonderful. That's And, and, and that's a classic line, right? Because you don't, yeah. she doesn't say what happens. No. Oh, <laughs> well, but you know. You know what happened. <laughs> we went to bed, obviously, went more, it was yeah. more than a kiss, but then we also were killed for it, you know? And you almost see those yeah. two actions happening at the very moment. And the last lines I read, Mentre che l'uno spirito questo dice, while, uh, while one spirit was telling me this, because Francesca is the only one talking, L'altro piangea, the other was weeping, so that I fainted mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. from pity. And then that last line, caddi come corpo morto cadde. I fell the way a dead body falls. And you hear the in the Italian. This is why I do have my students, even when I teach the poem in English, I do have them uh, have a copy along with the Italian on the other side. And, and I point out some of this. That last line has the hard C's. It's the anomatopoeic, the, the, the sounds yeah. imitating. You can almost hear, hear Dante's head bouncing off of the hard yeah. Uh, yeah. infernal floor with the hard C's of caddi come corpo morto cadde. A wonderful way to experience it. Roberto Benigni, the wonderful Italian actor, uh, has done an incredible series uh, on Dante uh, called Tutto Dante, All Dante. And he, he actually memorizes, the, he performs these cantos uh, by memory, and he does a wonderful uh, recitation of uh, Canto Five. Uh, people can look it up on YouTube. And again, even if you don't know the Italian, you can, you can sort of, I think, appreciate it. So that's one of the famous ones. Yeah, Canto Five for sure, so, uh, Paolo Francesco. 
one of the th- one of the things that I, I, I think you assume that uh, a lot of readers probably understand this. Certainly, if they have any, in, uh, they they have some uh, knowledge of Dante, mm. they understand this. But very quickly, he seems to have become famous in an era without a printing press. So he publishes, quote unquote, he, yeah. I guess, releases for copying Inferno in about when, 1317, 1318? Probably a little earlier. The Inferno yeah. probably, probably around 1314, I think is, you know, yeah. and again, there's some, there's some ambiguity about that, but probably a little bit earlier than that. But, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. This is well before printing presses, obviously. So everything is sort yeah. of copied. Yeah. And, you know, I don't study that part of it, uh, that part of Dante's reception as much as other people do, but, uh, but I do know that it becomes a bestseller. I mean, that's the term that's often used uh, by the people who do this in terms of the number of copies that are handmade, you know, the manuscripts yeah. uh, that are circulating uh, even in Florence uh, during the 14th century. Uh, so there's a, there's a great proliferation. We know this just from all the manuscripts that are even still around, uh, not, not to mention all the ones we've lost, uh, that he becomes very, very popular. Uh, in part because, Al, going back to comedy just for one second, the language he writes it in, right? He could have written mm-hmm. it in Latin and he writes other things in Latin. And epic poems are usually written in Latin, right? Virgil would be his model. And so it's his decision not to do that, but to write it in the vernacular. You know? So even t- today we might say, oh, it's a classical poem. You know, it's kind of a classical language. No, it's the, it's the language of the people. Uh, and so uh, that, that, I'm sure that has a big, it's a big reason why it becomes so popular. And, and the merchant class is starting to read. It's not just the people who are in the monasteries or who have the, the nobility uh, you know, uh, behind them. And so... Uh, more and more people are starting to read, and Dante becomes probably popular along with the, uh, the popularization of, of reading itself. You know, people becoming more literate. And so, there. And, and in addition, um, you've got this 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 poem which has, I'm, I'm going to say this, epic pretensions. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and these are the people who they're they 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 know Virgil, they know these other. This is epic is important, and has these epic pretensions. It seems to them it's he's meeting them. He's meeting that aspiration, and it's about them. Mm-hmm. They can read about their neighbors in Florence or in hell, right. you know, or or that guy, that famous guy who's so lazy that when he gets to his shop, he falls asleep and he only gets <laughs> up to go sleep again and have a right, meal. Right. He meets in Ante Purgatorio. Right. Um, that they they all know him too, you know, and there he is. Right. So there's this shock of recognition. That's that, yeah. and but but. You should explain why the decision to write in vernacular yeah. sort of a changed Italian history. Dramatically. Um, dramatically. And that seems crazy to us, yeah. maybe to someone who hasn't studied this or thought about it. But why does, why does, how does Dante change Italian history by writing in the Tuscan vernacular? He's putting, again, he's putting the language on the map essentially, right? By writing this poem, this epic poem, as you say, that still is a poem that people can relate to because they, yeah, they know some of those folks down the street. Uh, and it becomes popular, uh, and so he's taking. He's taking. He's he's actually arguing. He write. He actually writes a treatise called De Vulgari Eloquentia before he, he. You know, he's just starting to write the Divine Comedy probably around this time. This is thirteen oh four to thirteen oh seven, and he writes his treatise in Latin about the superiority of the vernacular, and that tells you everything you need to know about Dante, right? So he's showing off. He can write in Latin as well as anybody. He's writing this treatise in Latin, De Vulgari Eloquentia, on the on the. Uh, on the eloquence of the vernacular tongue, but he's basically defending, not just defending, he's actually claiming that the vernacular in many ways is superior because again, it's, it is the language, it's a living language, right? It has sort of that power to sort of convey the culture that it, that it sort of embodies linguistically. And so he's going to make the case for the language. And then, and so Dante will then become the 
you know, the archetype uh, for the later writers. Petrarch will come soon after. Boccaccio with his great poem to the Cameron, Petrarch with the sonnets. There you have the three, the De Corone, the three jewels, the three crowns. And then Tuscan will sort of, you know, become a little bit, you know, the, the model, so to speak, for the Italian literature, literary tradition, at least as it goes on. But even apart from it, Tuscan, it's the vernacular, right, that is now getting uh, kind of top billing. At the end of his life, Dante will be criticized. Uh, somebody will write to him from Bologna, which is the, the university city, right? Academics always get it wrong, right? So the academics <laughs> in Bologna, uh, Giovanni del Virgilio, writes to Dante in Latin, and he says, you know, Dante, this is, you've done some pretty, this is right at the end of his life, 13, 19, 13, 20, a year or two from dying, and Giovanni de Virgilio says, you know, I'd like to invite you to Bologna and actually, you know, crown you, you know, give you the, the laurel crown. Dante never gets that, that honor, as Petrarch will. Uh, but you really should be writing in Latin, don't you think? Uh, and you should be writing about some sort of dynastic theme, you know, not not because you know, that's what the epics are usually about, right? Uh, you know, not just about all this other stuff. What does Dante do? He writes back, because Giovanni de Virgilio wrote him in kind of a, he wrote it sort of a pastoral sort of letter. Dante writes back in an eclogue. So Dante is recuperating <laughs> this wonderful genre that Virgil wrote in, the 10 eclogues of Virgil, uh, the model of this, this genre when you, you have shepherds and sheep and things like that, right? But you're dealing with sort of issues of the day as well. Dante writes this eclogue back, this, this wonderful eclogue. And in it, he is uh, he's defending himself and critiquing uh, Giovanni de Virgilio and saying how you know the vernacular is actually uh, what he should be writing in. So even as he's been cri- criticized for not writing in Latin, he's writing in Latin to say why he's writing in Italian and <laughs> the, <laughs> the epic divine comedy. So he, you know, he he bet the whole house on it, so to speak, right? And if it had gone wrong, we wouldn't know Dante, right? But he clearly he clearly took the right approach in that. Uh, uh, you know, on the other side, maybe writing in the vernacular was also a shrewd political move in the sense that, well, one, he could air all his grievances. Uh, damned to hell, all of the people that he doesn't like, etc. Uh, but yet, because it's right, it's written in Italian and not in Latin. It doesn't have the moral force, you know, legally. Mm. And uh, and so people sometimes say, "Well, how wasn't Dante just strung up, you know, for this? You know, how wasn't not branded a heretic? Well, he will be granted a heretic by some, yeah. but it would because it would be because not so much of the Divine Comedy as because of his his political treatise uh, on the monarchy, the Monarchia, written in Latin, uh, yes. in which he defends the rights of the emperor to temporal or to kind of secular uh, authority, uh, balancing out the spiritual authority of the Pope, whereas the Pope would like to have both. <laughs> and so uh, that will, that will get Dante in hot water. Uh, so by, after his death. by 1350, yeah. uh, 30 years after his death, give or take, uh, Boccaccio is writing a, a denunciation of the, the Florentines have come to regret their decision mm. uh, as Dante's fame increases, which is sort of, that's a continuing, that'll be a, a continuing theme again of this story up until 2020. Um, but already Boccaccio can criticize them um, for what they had done to Dante, um, but it doesn't make any difference much, right? Right, right. So at that point, and Boccaccio is very, very, uh, is very acerbic about this. He's saying, you know, you, you really blew it here, you know, by, uh, by, by the way you treated him. Um, but even if you, you know, even if you begged him to come back now, Dante wouldn't because he's better off in Ravenna. <laughs> you, know, uh, you, you, you know, you, you kind of had your, had your chance. But Boccaccio, you know, this is Boccaccio is the first biographer of Dante, and you're, you're citing that essentially. Uh, and he, he writes various versions of this starting around 13, as you say, in the 1350s until later in his life. Um, and Boccaccio, as we know, is a wonderful storyteller himself from his Decameron, the hundred stories he tells uh, that, that spin out of the plague of 1348. Um, and so there's a lot of fiction in here. And Boccaccio is, is in some ways creating the Dante uh, that he sees, right? Not necessarily 
we, we don't take it all as sort of historical truth. Um, and so Boccaccio, for example, will criticize Dante for being so politically active and say, no, you should have just hold up in your study, you know, with your books of philosophy, you know, that's what, that's what a true intellectual does. Yeah, that, that really struck me, because that's, yeah. it's an interesting, there's a division, perhaps, mm-hmm. already, between um, Dante, uh, the poet of 1300, well, at least Dante, yeah. and Boccaccio, just 50 years apart. Right. Um, and Petrarch, I think, would, would have this, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's a bit of a, Petrarch likes to stick his, his, his thumb, <laughs> in, and both thumbs into political affairs as often. Yeah. But the idea of, of, of Boccaccio is much closer, sounds much closer to a romantic poet, mm. um, th- or, or even to us, right. than to Dante, um, where Dante would think, no, 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 I have a duty. I have a duty as a citizen of the, of the Republic of Florence, um, the city, to, to serve it. Um, and Boccaccio is saying, no, 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 no. Just, just, just stick, stick to, as you say, stick to your study. Right. And you write your poetry. Right. That's your service. Right. And the other thing is domestic life. Boccaccio famously yeah. Uh, yeah. harsh on that. And so he, he thinks that that was Dante's downfall as well. When, when in fact, I think we would say just the opposite, right? It's because of Dante's political life. It, and in some sense, sad as it is, it's because of the exile that we have the Divine Comedy. No exile, yes. no poem. And so Dante's greatness is in some ways born of his suffering, if we could say mm-hmm. that. And all of the good thing, things that sort of spin out of that. Uh, so, no, he gets that famously wrong. Though what I would say is, and I, I do this often in my teaching, uh, sometimes the people who get Dante wrong in that way uh, shed light on Dante, right, through, mm-hmm. through contrast, mm-hmm. as, as you were just doing. Um, artists like William Blake will get Dante famously wrong in some of the illustrations. But I always use those because he sometimes gets at something that is sort of going on in Dante. Uh, that you don't otherwise sort of see. Um, so even even the even the bad <laughs> the bad judgments sometimes uh, sort of serve a good purpose. But right, but Boccaccio is uh, is is lamenting uh, and and condemning Florence uh, for its treatment of Dante uh, as he's writing this uh, this this biography, which is essentially a hagiography. He's he's basically creating Dante as this great. He's he's the one who uses the word divine, as I said uh, at that time to define to uh, define Dante's work. Uh, so, um, but he's also sort of laying out the idea that it's Ravenna against Florence and uh, Dante belongs in Ravenna, not in Florence. And that is a theme, as you say, that will continue over the centuries. And, and indeed, Florentines at, at some point decide that they really need to get Dante back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to get his his earth back to their earth, to to use a, a metaphor that we'll return to, I think, at the, by the end of the conversation. Um, so th- w- some of them are, uh, they uh, attempt to inveigle the Ravenese mm-hmm. to uh, send Dante back. And then they also flirt with the idea of using uh, more force in order to get Dante's bones back. Um, this will eventually end in, a beautifully medieval incident, which <laughs> could you, could you ex- sort of explain uh, right. what leads up to the, the Franciscan, I don't know, yeah. the, sort of the self-theft? Right, the, right. The Virtus I, Sacra, as Patrick Geary would, would, would right. call well, it. Well, that's exactly right. And he's one of the, the, the sources that I use for relics yeah. and things like that. I think I call it Holy Grave Robbers, I think is yes. the title of my, my show chapter. But uh, so right, leading into that, as you mentioned, uh, Florence will actually start making some formal attempts to get Dante back. And so... Uh, one of them will occur in, I think, 1429, when Leonardo Bruni, who's a historian, uh, a Renaissance historian, but then also Chancellor of Florence, will sort of make a pitch uh, for that. Uh, and Ravenna will always, uh, Ravenna is, is just Machiavellian, I guess we might say, in sort of their, <laughs> their, their ability to sort of ward off or parry these attempts without sounding uh, hostile in any way, but they will always sort of uh, not do it. 
and the uh, go ahead. the, Rav, the they they come off. I guess that's what they call themselves. They yes. come up. They they're very uh, come out through the book. They come out very well. Yeah, they're very solid, right? Hard headed, right. and they know where who has better, buttered their bread. That's it's right. basically, I guess, the Basilica of San Vitale, uh, uh, the, the mosaics, <laughs> right. and Dante. I mean, that's what they got. Damn it! And they're hold, they're going to hold on to those with both fists. Absolutely, and and then we see that even today. But in any case, so right, so Lorenzo de Medici will have a little more pull in around, you know, 1476 to 1478. And at that point, uh, Florence and Venice are kind of uh, in sync with one another. And the, the ambassador to Florence, uh, this character in my book, uh, Bernardo Bembo, uh, is a very <laughs> a powerful man. And he basically promises Lorenzo, yeah, you know, when things settle down, since Venice essentially controls Ravenna at that time, uh, I will have Dante sent back to you. Well, things break down a little bit in the next year or so. Uh, Lorenzo almost gets killed, for one thing. Uh, his brother does. And so um, they have other things to think about. Uh, and so Bembo does not uh, send Dante back, but he refurbishes the tomb. So if we go to Ravenna today and we actually walk into the, the, little, uh, the little chapel, the Tempietto, little temple it's called, uh, what we see in there is essentially what Bembo had, had done in, uh, in, 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 in that period, 1480 to 1483 or so, with the marble sepulcher. And there's a, a bust of Dante uh, sort of above it that was carved by, um, by Pietro Lombardo at that time. And so um, he does that instead. And so Florence is going to keep trying. And now things get a little better for them because Lorenzo's son, Giovanni de' Medici, will become Pope Leo X. <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, 1513 or so. And so at that time, uh, the Florentines say, OK, now the, the stars are all lined up for us, right? We have a lot of power here in Florence. We've got one of our own there in Rome. Oh, and by the way, after the, uh, the latest uh, series of wars, uh, now uh, Ravenna is part of the Papal States. So the Pope actually has jurisdiction there as well. And so they write a series of letters over uh, three or four years, the last of which, the one that sort of convinces the Pope uh, to act on it, is signed by, uh, by 20 prominent Florentine members of the Sacred Academy of the Medici in Florence, including Michelangelo. So the great Michelangelo makes an appearance in my story because he promises in his signature uh, to this petition to the Pope that he will build a tomb in Florence that is worthy of Dante in an appropriate place. Uh, So one of the great churches of Florence. And so that seems to be enough to convince the Pope finally to act. And so what, what do they do? Probably 1519 or so, they send, the Florentines send their emissaries with papal backing. They kick out all of the uh, all of the forces of order from Ravenna, the the city government, municipal government. Everybody sort of you know uh, cast out of the city so they could do their deed. They go into the uh, the little uh, chapel there, probably in the middle of the night, thinking, okay, we're going to get the bones and go back to Florence. They open the lid and nothing. It's uh, empty. It's empty. Actually, not quite empty, but they don't they don't they don't bother to figure that out yet. They're just kind of bummed that they don't see a skeleton in there. And so, and, yeah, go ahead. And so. It, they have no idea what happened to it. They put the lid down and, and, <laughs> and go, go home back to I, with their tails between their legs. Yeah. We, we, we don't have. I, I wish we had sort of a, a, a yeah. detailed report from them. We don't really know, except we, we don't think they really did much because it, it was probably pretty clear what had happened in the sense that the, uh, the the chapel was situated physically right against the wall of the cloister of the Franciscan monastery. Yeah. And uh, if they had looked closely at the back of the tomb, they would have even seen part of it was chipped away. Uh, so we have to reconstruct the crime scene, which is what I had a lot of fun doing. Uh, yes, so it's speak. wonderful. And, you get and we see- know that, so, and part of this can be explained by the Franciscans had a very, well, Dante had a close relationship with the Franciscans and the Franciscans uh, felt the same. That's right. Uh, and they saw that here was uh, the 
Pope was about to take away Ravenna's uh, saint, mm. um, more or less. And uh, as many monasteries had throughout the Middle Ages, they did a preemptive theft. Preemptive is the word. That's exactly right. Preemptive theft. So, so we think from that point on, probably from 1519, if that's when this happens, uh, until 1810, I'll get to that date in a second, uh, Dante's bones are probably somewhere on the grounds or the premises of the convent of the monastery of the Franciscans right behind the tomb, uh, though they're not advertising that fact, obviously. Um, and they're probably passed on. It's probably a, like a Dan Brown sort of novel situation. It's very, here. It, it, it's yeah. very Dan Brown, very, very Sherlock Holmes story. Right, exactly. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the each uh, head of the uh, the prior of the uh, monastery right. passing on right. to the next, you know, right. very, right. very good. And, and yeah. you know, and we get some hints of how this might have happened later when the bones are eventually recovered, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. But in any case, the bones are taken, right? And, and as you said, uh, we don't know what the Florentines do, but they, they certainly uh, don't seem to do much there in Ravenna. Um, and then a few years later, another Medici Pope is uh, Clement the seventh is actually a Pope, uh, the cousin of, of, of uh, Leo the 10th. And somebody will actually write to him. We have a document to sign it, but it's basically telling Clement, you know, you really need to do what your brother, uh, what your brother Pope failed to do. You need to go in there and you need to torture those, <laughs> those people in Ravenna until they tell you, uh, where the, uh, where the bones are. And, uh, that was a lot of fun working out that little sonnet, but, um, but he clearly did not do that. Uh, and so nothing sort of happens then as well. So yes, the Franciscans have stolen the bones because, as you said, they belong to Ravenna, first of all. And so yeah. whether they're Franciscans or not, you know, they, 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 they're living in Ravenna and that's their city. But Dante had a very special attachment to that particular saint, which is why the uh, the Church of St. Francis is right next to his little tomb. That's where he was probably, the funeral mass probably took place there. Um, and Dante has a famous canto in the Paradiso dedicated to St. Francis and mm -hmm. clearly identified with Francis's uh, love of poverty, let's say, his marriage to poverty, and against the uh, against the Pope in some sense, because that will be a, a strong point of contention between Rome. And, and there are various world. other little clues right. like that. You mentioned the cord, the cord that mm. I think that's thrown down to summon is it Ger Gerion? Gerion, that's right. Yes, swims up through the air right. to right. perhaps to a Franciscan's court. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but there are lots of little uh, things like that. So let's uh, what what the the sweet part is is that for the next over three hundred and fifty years right. or People are venerating Dante's tomb and there's nothing inside. Well, a couple of knuckle bones. <laughs> right, that's what we'll um, find later. Um, and people go nuts over Dante's tomb, increasingly go nuts. Mm -hmm. So I, I, let's talk about the first of the many different types of Dante. We could have talked about, I guess, heretic Dante right. or you know, uh, imperialist Dante. But let's talk about enlightenment Dante or mm. revolutionary Dante. Right. So by the late 18th century, Dante is becoming something that he certainly could never have anticipated. How did uh, Enlightenment-minded Italians begin to see Dante as a proto-Enlightenment or revolutionary figure? That's a great right, and 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 that gets to really one of the probably one of the main theses of my book, which is that physical claims on Dante or claims to Dante's physical remains are also uh, claims to his authority, his legitimating yeah, authority. Yeah. Right, and people are making. Yeah. Dante into their own image. I think it's it, it's the ultimate Italian argumentum adductoritatum. Right, you know, mm -hmm. it's the appeal to authority. <laughs> probably, I mean, this is as good as it gets. And you probably saw I repeated a version of this phrase probably multiple times in the book. Yeah. Dante was fashioned into this. The fascists fashioned him into one of them. 
uh, and the Enlightenment people fashioned him or they molded him into one of these. And so, yes, each each age and each place is sort of making Dante into sort of what they would like him to be to support their cause. Right. So in the Enlightenment, obviously, uh, we have a very different sort of political configuration. Uh, Napoleon is controlling much of Italy at this time, especially northern Italy. And so Ravenna is falling within that uh, jurisdiction. So Vincenzo Monti, who is an Italian writer who basically, I don't know, he probably occupies five or six different positions on the political spectrum, depending on the time of day. But in the uh, in the late 18th century, he is one of the uh, one of the revolutionary figures and he's giving speeches at Dante's tomb. And he's basically uh, saying, you know, if I could open the tomb now, I would show you, you know, how uh, how uh, how Dante belongs to us and, and is part of the spirit of the revolution, <laughs> you know, the French Revolution. And of course, we're all very thankful he did not open the tomb at that moment because the bones <laughs> would not have been there. We don't know what would have happened to the poor Franciscans because one of the uh, one of the uh, one of the events that sort of comes out of the French revolution and the enlightenment is the suppression of the monasteries, right? And so the Franciscans are going to be forced to leave. And that's why I said 1810 will be that very important year, because they will be forced to leave the convent. They've got the bones. What are they going to do with them? They don't want to just leave them there. They don't trust the people in power in Ravenna at the time. And so what they do is they hide them uh, in an old uh, passageway that has been bricked over. And what they do is they remove the bricks, they put the box of bones in there, and they put the bricks back, right? And so that probably happens in 1810, uh, but the bones continue not to be in the tomb. As all these people, like Lord Byron, uh, a little Mm -hmm. bit after, will come and they will worship at the tomb. Uh, They will sort of uh, pray to Dante for uh, literary, poetic inspiration, uh, for political inspiration, because most of these people in these early Romantic period are like the revolutionaries. They're looking for the independence of these uh, and the unification and the independence of states like Italy, which are occupied by foreign entities and are d- divided by factional politics. Um, and so Byron will do that. Uh, Ugo Foscolo, an Italian, will do that, uh, who will en- end up in England because of his political uh, beliefs in exile. Uh, but all of these people will basically come to Dante's tomb thinking that the bones are there uh, and sort of uh, lavishly wor- worshiping Dante uh, as if they were. And then, of course, it, I don't think it becomes less meaningful. Maybe it becomes more pe- meaningful that they're praying to an empty tomb uh, <laughs> and that they still have such such strong uh, feelings about it. Uh, but we're not going to find that out for another uh, another fifty five years. Well, well, let me let me press you to make yes. this the connection. You you write that uh, he's emerged, so he's emerging oh. as, as the nineteenth century goes on. He he ascends in stature. He becomes even ever more important uh, as the literary, spiritual, and political father mm-hmm. in the late eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. The prophetic father of a free and united Italy. Mm. Um, uh, here, uh, one of my uh, TAs is undergraduate, uh, Tommaso Astarita, who mm-hmm. now teaches at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. He would then write the name of Mazzini on the board mm-hmm. and immediately erase it because, <laughs> as he said, you know, Italians, I, so I feel bad to even say it, but Mazzini, the nationalist, uses Dante. Right. Um, what's the connection? How Can you explain to us yeah. the, how they took the Divine Comedy, right. which I probably, I obviously I'm seeing in a very naive mm-hmm theological, spiritual, philosophical way, they see, how do they see that as a political document prophesying a free and united Italy? Right. And, and we're going to see this in America as well. And hopefully we'll sure. have at least a few moments to talk about that. So certainly starting in the late 18th, but into the 19th century, Dante's poem is read, not so much as you say, as, as, a, as a theological uh, masterpiece, but as a political poem. Uh, and the reason is there are the we, we, we talked about this a little bit. Dante is a both and kind of guy, right? He's very spiritual, mm-hmm. but he's very involved in the world. His own experience is the experience of exile for politics. 
And many of these people, like Mazzini, have been mm. put in that same position, right? Mazzini is spending mo- most of his adult life uh, outside of Italy because of his political beliefs. Foscolo the same. Byron the other direction coming out of England yeah. into, yeah. into yeah. Italy for a whole other reason, but we'll, we'll put that aside for a second. But, um, but in any case, um, there's enough there in the Divine Comedy, let's put it that way, right? That you can mm-hmm. say in Canto Six of the Purgatory, when Dante sees Virgil, his great, his great mentor from uh, Roman antiquity, embrace uh, Sordello, who's a more medieval writer, but also from Virgil's home city of Mantova. Just the fact that those two men, thousand years apart, are from the same city, causes them to uh, to have this very emotional bonding moment and embrace. Uh, Dante yes. the poet stops narrating the scene there in the middle of Canto Six, and he goes on to, I don't know, maybe a hundred line diatribe against it starts i said of italia enslaved italy and then he goes mm. down a list a laundry list up and down the peninsula including the the montagues and the capulets and <laughs> pointed at to yeah. shakespeare um, but all of these every different city along the in the peninsula is riven by politics so instead of embracing one another as two people from the same city should be they're cutting one another's throats and so Dante is seen here as somebody who is essentially prophesying, right? He's looking ahead mm-hmm. to a time when you get beyond that uh, that division, that divisiveness, that factional uh, mode of being, and you sort of unite. So then, so as Italy in the Italy is not a country, right? It's not a country uh, in the 19th century, as Germany is not either. And, and as Italy's moving toward that independence, uh, they need to unify, and so Dante becomes sort of this model uh, for kind of how to do that, right? He's because he's decrying all of the ill effects of the divisive politics, along with the mercenary armies, right? All of the people from other countries who are every great Italian writer, even Machiavelli will do this, Petrarch will do this, right? Mm -hmm. They're all kind of lamenting the interference of these foreign powers and how they are corrupting Italy. And, and here's the third element that Mazzini would sort of warm up to, the papacy. Mm -hmm. The papacy is holding it back. And though Dante is not against the papacy, he's certainly against the Pope at the time in the papacy, and he's against the Pope having that kind of political power, right? A That's a political common, power, which is very much mm-hmm. at issue in 1848. Very much at uh, issue with Pope yeah. Pius IX uh, trying to claim more and more of it, and uh, so uh, and so that all of those ingredients, in addition to, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the 20th century, Dante is mapping out what Italy might look like, right? He gives you basically the geography, the cartography of Italy, just through all of his references to what, what should be sort of considered Italian, even before we have an Italian nation state. And, yeah. and then the language, right? Because uh, people yeah, who study yeah. the history of nations, like Benedict Anderson, uh, they talk about technology and language, right? And how that unifies. And that's that's sort of one of the ingredients. Uh, you have to have the language and then you have to have sort of the media, the print media, the ways in which you diffuse the documents and the pamphlets and all those sorts of things. And then you give rise to the modern nation state in the 19th century. So uh, all of those ingredients, even though you have all of the other theolo- theological and personal narratives going on, you have all of the political ingredients that will then allow somebody like Mazzini to identify with Dante. Mazzini will say in 1841, to Italians who are living in London, and he will talk about uh, the movement for unification. He will call on them to he say, "You need to look to Dante. You need to study Dante. And when we when we achieve our goal, we'll erect this." I think the end of it, he says, "We'll erect a statue to Dante in Rome, and at the bottom of it, we'll say to the prophet of the Italian nation." You know, yeah. uh, that's the end of his, his address uh, in the newspaper. I think in his speech in, in 1841. So this is even 20 years before what we call the Risorgimento, right? The uprising. Yeah. Uh, that will lead us to, to the nation. So well, for those reasons, Dante becomes the prophet uh, and the spiritual power behind the uh, behind unification. 
And so unification eventually is affected. Uh, we'll pass over. I, I, I would recommend people look at the book just to find out about the 1848 guest book at Dante's tomb, ah, yes. which is just fascinating. <laughs> Pius the Ninth signs it. Everybody signs it. It's very the people who are fighting against Pius the Ninth and the Austrians sign it. It's uh, it's fascinating. Uh, but let's fast forward to 1865 to the ceremony in which Dante finally gets a statue in Florence. If not. Uh, the bones uh, of Dante don't show up back up in Florence, but there's a the statue is revealed in Florence. Could you explain this? This seems to me, in some ways, uh, you make it to be and, and the, sort of the cultural apotheosis of the Resurgimiento, mm, exactly. um, and it's a fascinating, fascinating ceremony. And that's and, and in some ways, uh, we're talking about a chapter maybe halfway through the book, but it's also in the prologue, right? Because I wanted yes. to give the reader a sense of what this was about, and it's in 1865. Yeah. That we actually discover those bones that I said were yes. hidden behind so that. So let's talk, let's that talk about both of those because they happen yeah. simul- right. more or less simultaneously. Right, and and I just just I don't know if it'd be interest to some of the listeners, but how I wrote the book, you know, I was thinking of it as a bit of a mystery story, right? And so yeah. I didn't want to just I didn't want to just relate it in a, in a sort of straight linear history, right? So I wanted yeah. it to be uh, I wanted it to be that hook at the beginning where you see that there's this momentous event when Dante's bones are rediscovered in 1865. But then I go back to the beginning, right? And I tell you when mm-hmm. he dies, and then we work our way back up to that event again, and we finally catch up to it. Uh, I don't know what chapter it is, but about halfway through the book, it's St. Dante chapter in 1865. So that 1865 really is the center of the book in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in some ways, because of what we were just, we started to talk about, these centenary events, right? These yes. anniversaries of Dante's birth and death. 1865 is the anniversary, the 600th anniversary of his birth uh, in Florence. And so that's going to be a big year for the Florentines. It's also, as you just said, soon after the Risorgimento, 1859 to 1861, those are the two years when much of Italy uh, liberates itself uh, from uh, from papal territories and also from, uh, from foreign uh, oppression. And so... Uh, Florence is a uh, an important city. The capital is Torino, Turin at first, but they move it to Florence in 1865. And so you have now the king and you have the parliament. You have actually the seat of government in Florence uh, just a few months before Dante's 600th birthday in May. And so it's basically a double birthday party, right? It's a birthday party uh, for the new nation of Italy at the same time that it's a birthday party. Uh, for Dante, the key event of which will be, as you mentioned, the unveiling of Enrico Pazzi's colossal, huge statue that we would see today if we went to Florence and uh, the Church of Santa Croce, Piazza Santa Croce, we would see it actually up right near the church on the left-hand side facing the church. Uh, when it was unveiled, it was in the center of the piazza because that's where the action was. And so we have, uh, I think it's May 14th is when the statue is unveiled. We have four or five days of this incredible national uh, national festival in Florence. So every, anybody who's everyone, except probably the Pope and his people, right? Because mm-hmm. Rome is not yet part of Italy, right? We're going to have to wait until 1870, 1871, and it's not going to be a very peaceful uh, transition, right? Pope Pius IX is going to have to essentially be forced out when the Italian troops arrive in 1870. And so uh, the Italians are playing a little bit of a double game. They're kind of promising the French who are kind of protecting the Pope, well, we're not really going to bother with Rome because we're going to put our capital here in Florence. But it's kind of like wink, wink. We know as soon as the, the French leave Rome, we'll get there and we'll get the Pope out and we'll get Rome because Rome has to be the capital of Italy for reasons I guess you and I could probably imagine, right? Just in terms of mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, the great city, the city of the empire, but also the city of the papacy. And for Dante, it's both. Uh, that's why Rome is sort of the other important city in my story. Florence, Ravenna, and Rome would be the three big cities. Uh, but they're going to bide their time. And Venice is not yet 
on the map, right? Venice is a year later, Venice will be free. And so, That's right. and so in some ways, the birthday party is about celebrating Italy, celebrating Dante, but also lamenting. And again, here they're quoting Dante. Actually, they'd inscribe it on the, on the sword that they give to the king as a gift. Uh, Dante's uh, verses that say, um, you know, come and see your Rome that weeps. In other words, that Rome is weeping. Uh, they're using that to say because Rome is not yet yeah. still part this of is- the nation. This is sort of a, not just nationalist Dante, but irredentist Dante. Yes. And I was uh, this this uh, passion for reuniting the broken fragments of Italy together with the with its the mother, which I was thinking as I was reading how how primitive. Mm. Uh, and then I realized, oh yeah, okay, that's primitive. It led to World War One, World War Two, <laughs> and could well lead to a yes. a war in the twenty first century, uh, as we see now in the Himalayas and the South China Sea. Right. So uh, primitive, but uh, perhaps mm. primitive in a way that like the reptile instinct. Is or something like that. Yeah, the reptile brain is primitive, but it's still there. Yes. Um. Uh, so, so this is this the celebration, and and Patsy the dog, he puts a, <laughs> a Roman imperial eagle at, at Dante's feet, there looking you. up at him, there you go. sort of beseechingly. Right. Uh, there's a message there, which is I don't think I have to be an art historian to figure out. Right. Right. No, that's exactly right. And and you know the uh, the Redeemer, I think, is the, the chapter title I use for the irredentism, irredentismo in Italian, and there's that word that has the religious connotations, right? Yeah. Redemption, mm-hmm. um, but it also has a very strong political connotation in the sense of trying to get back, redeem uh, parts of Italy that are not yet part of the national map. So these are areas outside of the uh, the actual legal borders of the nation, but are thought by the Italians to really belong to Italy, mainly because you have Italian-speaking populations or Italian culturally-oriented populations uh, that are parts of other countries. And so you're absolutely right. It begins here in 1865, though the word won't be used for another uh, 10 or 15 years itself, but they're actually talking about at least Venice and, and, and Rome, but also these other areas that, you know, that later become part of Yugoslavia and now part yep. of Croatia and Slovenia, uh, et cetera. But those areas uh, and, and, uh, and those areas are not part of Italy, some of which will become part of Italy later. But Dante, as I mentioned earlier, is the cartographer because he mentions these areas. He mentions the areas that would sort of get us up to Trieste, Trieste or Trent, Trento, uh, which are then part of the Austrian uh, Empire, uh, but are not part of Italy, but will later uh, become part of Italy. And so the uh, the Italian patriots will use Dante to justify their claims on those territories, sometimes to absurd lengths, as we will see later with D'Annunzio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they will use Dante to kind of make that claim. And as you said, that will, that essentially is why Italy will go to war in 1915, right? A year later, yes. after the beginning of hostilities, they're not sure what side they're going to go on. <laughs> We're not, no one's sure what side they're going to go on. But everyone is sure that if they go to war, it's going to be because they have claims to these lands that are parts of Austria. They're actually in a treaty, right, with Germany and Austria at that time, uh, but they actually break it uh, because, again, uh, you know, they are uh, they are not initiating the hostilities here, and they will join the uh, the other the other side, right, the, the British and the French. Yeah. Um, but D'Annunzio will use Dante in his speeches that essentially rally Italy to war. I mean, I don't know how effective he would have been without that. Um, these, these very famous speeches in 1915 that actually get Italians to support the war effort. And eventually the government, when it does declare war on Austria and then a few months later on Germany, uh, the I think the head of the Senate or the head of the, 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 uh, the deputies, the Congress, who actually drafts the, the statement is actually the president or one of the offices of the Dante Society of Italy. And so he's going <laughs> to, you know, he's going to sort of call on Dante when he's making this political uh, case for Italy to lay claim to these lands that are, in his view, occupied by these other uh, countries, right? So the Redeemer Dante becomes very, very important in, in the story of the time. So, so let's um, go back to 
go next to last. Um, there's, there's so much there to unpack that we just don't have time to. But let's talk briefly about fascist Dante, which might seem the most incredible Dante of them all. Uh, but yet actually has the same sort of quirky quirky logic that the other Dantes have um, because the fascists are reading De Monarchia and they're seeing a mystical world emperor uh, in the pages of De Monarchia. And you can find, if you look, if you squint, you can find him in the comedy as well, I suppose. Um, So that's the Dante that they find important. That's right. And you know, it's not that different from what Mazzini did in the 19th century, right? When he's seen Dante as this this, uh, proponent of uh, an Italian liberal nation, uh, you know, Mussolini, when he's going to uh, look at Dante or his ministers, some of whom are very well educated and well educated in medieval history and in Dante. Um, Solmi is, is one of his ministers who will uh, preside over many of the events that happen in, in my pages. Um, but they will call, as you say, on Dante's, uh, Dante's champion of the emperor and the empire. Now, it's a different day and age, right? Dante's doing it as a way to counterbalance an overreaching pope, right? An overreaching papacy. So it's not uh, it's not essentially an aggressive move, right? In some ways, it's a defensive move. move. Uh, for Mussolini, it's going to become a very aggressive move because he is identifying with the great uh, Roman past, right? He's going to redo Rome uh, and, and, and in a way as, as sort of a, you know, an updating of Augustus Caesar, right? He's going to, he's going to sort of present himself as the new, as the new emperor in some way as he becomes a dictator uh, after the, the march on Rome in 1922 and then later uh, into the 20s and 30s. And that's why, you know, they will call on Dante in some ways. They will, the one thing they will do, and, and you know, you have to kind of give them credit for it, as, as perverse as their appropriation of Dante is, they will renovate the area around the tomb. And so uh, much of the reason why things were cleaned up and the, the bar that was across the street, the beer garden that was across yeah. the street was sort of cleaned up and they kind of remodeled things. And Mussolini and the fascist government poured a lot of money into that. Um, and some of the people, this was a hard thing to write about, but some of the people that I was relying on for all of my uh, all of my material, Corrado Ricci, this wonderful art historian, is a big fascist proponent. He becomes a fascist senator. Um, and he is, a, yeah, and he will very, basically lead the uh, way in terms of these renovations. He's very high in the regime too when he dies, isn't he? I mean, he's, I think he's, is he minister of culture? Well, he's or, no, no, he never, he never. That's not, somebody else, okay. but but uh, pa- else, okay. Pavolini, right? Pavolini, Pavel, later, right? Pavolini, okay, yeah. but Ricci will become a, an, a senator, and um, you know, at some point uh, when there's talk of demolishing Dante's the the, uh, the little temple and sort of moving moving it, uh, he will actually yes. pull, pull Mussolini aside in, in the halls of the of the Congress and say, you know, please don't let them do that. And Mussolini will promise him that he won't do that. Uh, because it has such historic values. So the fascists, you know, are, are in cahoots politically, but also architecturally in terms of trying yeah. to kind of rescue Dante. But yes, it's because of the empire. Um, and then also, the, the um, again, the idea of the redeemer, that Dante still represents this idea of trying to sort of lay claim to lands uh, that belonged to Italy. Mussolini would have grown up with that and so would identify with that as well. Well, yeah, because he was from uh, he was from Bolzano, wasn't he? Or... He, was, he was from the area, an area not far from Ravenna. Far. That's right. And so, yeah. um, oh, that's right, from near Ravenna. But he he had spent so much time yeah. in Milan. He was right. he had been an agitator in in Austria mm-hmm. for right. uh, for a while. I, right. I know. Yeah. When he was a so- when he was a socialist, uh-huh. um, and this also culminates in this in this really mm-hmm. high modernist. Yeah. conception for the 1942 World's Fair, which never came off, our exposition, right. which right. never came off, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, right. uh, called the Danteum, which Corbusier thought was, wow, that was fantastic. Right. Um, it's uh, it like, it, it's the, it, uh, yeah, it, it almost turns, it kind of turns, if nothing else will turn you against high modernism, this might. <laughs> um, this is, uh, you can see that I began to see the connections between Philip Johnson and Nazism and fascism right. uh, too here. Uh, um 
could you briefly, briefly explain yeah. what the Danteum, the Danteum was? Because it's really colossal, and you give such a great description of thank, it. Thank you. Yeah, and it's about it's only a, a short chapter, maybe 10, 10, 12 pages yeah. in the book. But but I was really fortunate to get some wonderful illustrations from a descendant, it seems, of really? the of the, uh, of the architect Terragni is, wow. is this is the character I talk about most in this chapter because he's the one who is really behind. He's he's the architect that Corbusier is is praising to the skies, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that we think does most of the deny uh, the um, design of it. Um, and I rely, we rely mostly on his uh, Terani's uh, detailed descriptions and these drawings and, and some of the um, even the paintings that I have reproduced in the book. Uh, but yeah, it's this it's this high as you say this high modernist uh, this it, rationalist architecture. There's kind yes. of a name for the movement, um, and has a lot to do with light and, and reflective surfaces and openness. Uh, though there's still some of the monumental uh, structures of neoclassical architecture in there as well. And so Terani, you know, whatever you think of his politics, which are turn out to be pretty, pretty awful. He does sort of have some interesting ideas for how you would sort of architecturally represent sort of the, uh, the inferno, let's say, where you have this, this room that has just these little slits at the top, so not much light. Um, but he's trying to represent in the spacing of the columns and the arrangement of the columns, kind of the mathematical precision of Dante's poem. Uh, and again, he's basing it on the, on the golden mean ratio and things like that, you know, to, to yeah. try to get at that kind of a mindset that was common for people like Dante in their epic poems. And then you get into the purgatory, which has more light and openness. And then the paradiso would actually be these crystal glass columns, you know, to, to reflect the, uh, the, the, the uh, flashiness of, of the paradiso, et cetera. Uh, so it's an incredibly detailed, uh, you know, conception that never gets built but fortunately, you know, people have done wonderful work, architectural students in Italy have done some wonderful work, even on videos, one of which I relied on heavily in the book and I, and I linked to, where you can sort of walk through what it would have looked like. Huh. And, and the, that, that, will be in, that will be in the show notes. And it's, yeah, uh, yeah. it's crazy. It's like the modernist, it's like the Dante experience, dude. That's right. It's like, it's right. like the divine comedy experience. It's a lot like, actually, it's a little bit like Dante worlds. Yeah. I, 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 but yeah. you didn't know about this. No, no, I did not know about this. No, no, no. I wish I had. But uh, I know, yeah. but it's 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 crazy because it's not mm. it's not like a it's not a at least mm. as as we see it's not a text heavy. They're not explaining right. the divine comedy to you. Right. You're going to experience it through the medium of modernist architecture. That's right. You're and, going to feel it right, right. as you walk through the right. through the Danteum. And the fascist connection would be, this is all in praise of Mussolini. In fact, you know, I think I say all roads lead to Mussolini or something at the yeah. end of this, because you would identify, you get into this building and there's a moment uh, in the, uh, in the uh, building when you're traversing it, where you come across an eagle, exactly. And the eagle is shaped like an M, as Dante also does in the heaven of Jupiter That's right. in the Paradiso. And the M, of course, is Mussolini. Mussolini was famous for signing with a huge M uh, on a lot of these documents. And so it's it's in praise of Mussolini and the and the imperial ambitions because this is nineteen we're talking nineteen I don't know thirty nine or so uh, you know thirty eight thirty nine when when Terania is starting to sort of map this out and Italy has already claimed sort of an imperial colonial possession in Ethiopia in nineteen thirty six a big moment of Mussolini uh, to four hundred thousand I think people in the piazza below you know claiming that Italy has reclaimed its empire with with its occupation brutal occupation, including the use of, of nerve gas and mustard gas and things like that of Ethiopia in 1936. Um, and so Terani is essentially celebrating that a little bit, that imperial uh, connection between uh, Dante, as you said, and, and here uh, the fascist uh, pretensions to empire uh, at that time. It doesn't get built, though, because what? Not, the, the war starts, 1939, obviously. 
Uh, funding is difficult. Funding is difficult. And Tarani is a soldier, like Dante. Dante, I, I didn't mention this, and it's a key moment, I think, and yeah. it runs through my book. Dante was a very brave uh, cavalryman soldier in, in 1289 when he was 24 years old at this Battle of Campaldino, where he probably should have been killed because he was in the front lines and the cavalry, and many, many uh, people died that day. Uh, and it, I can't help but think that it's seared into his mind an image of sort of you know the, the horrors of the warfare and things that he would then sort of describe the blood the blood river in the inferno for example with the violent things uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. Um, but Tarani too is a soldier and he ends up in this the ferocious campaign in Russia, and he will uh, he will survive it, but most of his comrades will not. And when he comes back to Italy, he's basically he's a mess. He's 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 he's, he's destroyed mentally, and he he's, he undergoes electroshock therapy. And he eventually uh, just collapses, probably from, from a cerebral hemorrhage uh, at age 39 or so. And so he dies. And then Mussolini, of course, the, the, this is 1943 now, and the war turns against Mussolini in 1943, uh, in part because Rome is bombed by the Allies for the first time. And so uh, five days later, the, the, uh, the Grand Council of Fascists uh, gather, and they've turned on Mussolini, and the king uh, famously deposes him. Uh, but Mussolini will be, of course, rescued by Hitler and then set up sort of a separate little republic in the north. The Republic of Salo uh, in northern Italy, uh, but well, that's 1943, uh, and that's why the uh, the Dante doesn't get built. Obviously. Yeah, and uh, we don't have time to talk about the measures mm. that the Ravenese took to defend mm. uh, Dante's uh, relics, which were uh-huh. fascinating and, in some ways, uh, were were cunning. Of mm. course, as you might expect by now, when you think about the re- people in Ravenna, mm. um, or about Mussolini's uh, one of his enthusiast short-lived plans to bring the bones of Dante to the Alps, where they would, uh, where they would engage in a last-ditch standout against the Americans and the British. Go out in a blaze uh, of glory. Go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's talk briefly about global Dante, mm. uh, or actually maybe about Yankee Yank Dante. Uh-huh. Um, because there's some, you draw some very interesting connections between um, the United States and Dante, uh, and, the, and we're talking about the the Dantes that show up in the book, mm. not the actual Dante. Right. Um, one is goes back to 1865 uh, when Lincoln is just a month dead mm. when Pazzi's statue is mm. is unveiled in Florence, um, and it's and there are frequent references uh, to the Civil War right. um, and to the reunion uh, of the Civil War as well as to the re- reunion of Italy. These are sort of, these are twinned. That's right. Right. And it happens at one of the ceremonies at the end of that uh, that festival on May 18th, 1865. The American representative gets up to speak. Um, he doesn't speak uh, Italian. Somebody has to translate uh, for the group. Uh, but when, as soon as he mentions the reunited states, everybody sort of uh, applauds. And then at the name of Abraham Lincoln, everybody sort of falls silent that his funeral had just taken place a few days earlier. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, there was a, this great identification on both sides of the ocean, right? For the Italians yes. here, you know, recognizing uh, the, the importance of the United States, which had just suffered this horrible calamity of division, now coming back together, just as you say, Italy is coming together as a country. And then back on the other side of the ocean, uh, the, the Americans here, who are basically on the side of the Union uh, and the abolition of slavery, are going to adopt Dante in some ways as one of their models, right? Because Dante as the exile, as the figure, as we talked earlier from Mazzini and others, Mazzini who actually had connections to the abolitionists in the United States, uh, Dante as a figure of liberation will be adopted by uh, not only the, uh, you know, the, the highly educated uh, Boston, Cambridge crowd, people like Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, et cetera, the people who will bring Dante uh, to the mainstream in America uh, through Longfellow's translation, but also the African, Frederick Douglass, African-American 
uh, Freedom Readers, I think is the title of a book mm-hmm. that Dennis Looney wrote on this topic, but um, they will uh, adopt Dante as sort of this figure of liberation and write poems in praise of him along with Lincoln. So Dante and Lincoln, right, are seen as these two. We don't wouldn't put those two together normally, but they're seen as sort of uh, twin pillars of this, uh, this spirit of, of freedom. And so, yeah, Dante becomes a very important figure. And, 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 you know, in a way, that's the book I'm writing now, Al. You know, the next book I write is basically the American Dante. And so it kind of yeah. starts with that chapter, which I do talk about a little bit in Dante's Bones, but that will be the beginning. Of, it's, of the uh, it's very interesting because, you know, thinking, um, you know, the, the, you've got uh, the 39th uh, New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment, which calls itself the Garibaldi Guards. Right. Um, and you've got the first, the fir- the very tip of the Italian immigration has begun. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you you refer to the, the Italians coming to Lincoln's funeral procession um, uh, with a, a self-identification as Italians that, let me just point out, they never would have had in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one can't point that out too much. My great-grandfather, Zamboni, mm-hmm. thought Italians were awful. <laughs> uh, he was a subject of the emperor. He had fought for the emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a proper kind of state. Right. The United States was much better, but you know, if you weren't going to be American, then you should probably be serve the the emperor. Right. Uh, you wouldn't want to be an Italian, <laughs> even though, of course, you know, right. he was by a nationalist. By Mazzini's point of view, he was a, a separated brother, mm. uh, but that wasn't his point of view. Right. Uh, but somehow, of course, like so many immigrants, when he came to the United States, mm. uh, my great grandfather is no longer Genoese mm. or. Mm. From the uh, the from or Sudtirolese, Tirolese, right. they became Italians, right. um, and that sort of Dante that that's part of the American Dante um, story, I think. Yeah, as well. yeah, exactly. I, I mentioned it just in passing. I think in the book, you know, the statue that you would find today in New York City at the juncture, I guess it's Broadway, Columbus, and Sixty Third Street, right across from the Lincoln Center Metropolitan uh-huh. Opera House, is a statue of Dante. Right, it's called Dante yeah. Park. Um, I only I spend most of my summers in New York. This is the first time in thirteen that I'm not there. Um, but, um, you know, um, that's because of 1921, Italian Americans uh, came together and funded this statue yeah. uh, there. You, you can find them. Uh, I, I remember running across one in Baltimore when I was a student. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find them in the strangest places, usually yeah. near some Italian American section of a city. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Philly, there's, I think, two or three of them. Okay. But, uh, but there's, there's, there's one there too. I just can't remember where it is. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, this is this is part of the this is part of cultural pride, along with Columbus statues. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and they're often connected. Uh, that's right. Very much connected. Very much connected. Yeah. Um, can we just briefly tell about Longfellow? Yes. Uh, because uh, this seems people don't, well when they read this, and this, I'm excited that this is your next book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When they read that Longfellow sends uh, a specially bound uh, edition of his own translation. Mm-hmm. That will seem well. That's that's who does he think he is? Uh, well, I'll tell you. He th- he thinks he is the biggest English poet on either side of the Atlantic. Is who, who he thinks he is. And I mean, it's a it's a very big gift that he sends. Right, he's a celebrity. Right, we don't think of him he's that way celebrity. today. But we don't think of he, him at all. He no. is certainly a celebrity in that day. You know, there's there's a new biography by Nick Basbane's on Longfellow. Yes, it's it's very worth, good. Very good. Worth looking at for, for a lot of this. But yeah, 1865. So it's two years before he actually publishes it. It's 1867 yeah. when the, the book is published. But he has some of his own personal copies that he sort of hands out to his best friends. And but the thing that he thinks first of all is his one of his good buddies is Charles Sumner the famous American senator and he gets Charles Sumner to get to get it to the ambassador so that it can get to Italy in time for the 1865 uh, festivities i think only inferno got there in time and then he yeah. he had the purgatory and the paradiso sent as well and so yeah it was this great gift and it was a way for longfellow to sort of stake his claim 
and to show, well, great respect for Dante, surely, uh, but also to sort of establish himself, right, as a, as a national poet <laughs> in the United States who is now doing what Dante kind of did uh, for the Italians. Um, well, so that's a big yeah. moment. Yeah, that's true. It's very much what he because, of course, that was the whole idea, wasn't it, of those uh, mm-hmm. tales from the wayside inn of of uh, Paul Revere's ride in Hiawatha, right. was you know in the spirit of the Kalevala, the what, the Finnish epic uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, that he had read, and I think okay. God he even learned Finnish to translate it, yeah. like Tolkien did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, uh, but that was very much in his mind to mm-hmm. create a national epic mm-hmm. uh, that somehow reached back into the very distant American past to create an America. Right. You know, as an aside, I think I mentioned it in the book. I have an article on it. But uh, one of those relics that comes out of the discovery of the bones in 1865, uh, we didn't yeah. we didn't actually say how it happens. You know, a, no, a, a stonemason is just renovating uh, the area around the tomb. This is a chapel. It's about 25 feet away. And, you know, they can't they can't get get to some uh, bricks because there's a uh, there's not enough room. And so they have to remove some of them. And so they get a pump in there to get the water out. But the, the handle of the pump is too long. And so they have to take out some bricks from the wall. And lo and behold, as he's using his pickaxe to take out the bricks, he hits wood. <laughs> and sure yeah. enough, it's a it's the wood box with the bones. They fall out uh, in Latin. It says, you know, uh, Dante's Osa, the bones of Dante. And that's how we find out that the bones have been placed there by the Franciscans. In this case, probably 1810, but the date on the box is 1677, meaning that it was probably one of those moments when the box was within the convent being passed around and they were taking it, it, sort of it, a look at the bones. Um, a secret ceremony, no secret, doubt. Secret uh, ceremony, I'm sure. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but no. All of that sort of happens right there. But p- parts of the box that falls out of the wall end up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Somebody, one of the, one of the masons picks them up um, and he, he has a parchment drawn up witnesses sign it it ends up in sort of a uh, you know in a rare books uh, collection and the american i guess he's the american consul to florence is this famous uh, t-, t bigelow lawrence collector of uh, armory and things like that he ends up in italy for a couple of years in 1868-69 he ends lawrence, up lawrence massachusetts yeah you got it and they get yeah. he gets hold of the uh of the fragments of the coffin or the box that dante's bones are in which are now considered a relic he dies a year or two later, I think at uh, the inauguration, must be Ulysses Grant, I guess, the inauguration back in the U.S. His wife is now a very wealthy widow, Elizabeth Lawrence, and she's she's a pal of Longfellow's, and Longfellow's always sending her his poetry. And so sure enough, at some point she says, look, I have these these fragments of Dante's coffin. And Longfellow says, oh, my gosh, I, I wish I had those. <laughs> and again, she, <laughs> and she, she makes the gift of, of, the, of the fragments. And so today they're in Longfellow House in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, as you probably know, is also George Washington's headquarters for the Siege uh, of Boston in 1775. Some, 1776. Uh, as, as the philosopher George Costanza would have uh, observed, mm-hmm. worlds collide. Worlds collide. Worlds, and it, it's chilling to be in that room, you know, where, where George Washington met with, uh, you know, with his generals and statesmen. It's the same room that Longfellow was writing the uh, the, divine, the translated divine comedy, and you have the fragments of Dante's coffin. In the back. <laughs> so good, such yeah, a, right. and cra- um, it's uh, you know, there are very few places in the United States, and this happens all the time in, when you start to study things in Italy, right. where you feel where you can see uh, human history is like geological history, right. you know. Right. Um, that that study is one of the few places with all those things, mm-hmm. uh, so things collected as well as things that actually happen. But there's a, there are geological layers of history in that one place. Right. Um, let's uh, close up by uh, talking about sort of the uses and abuses of history. Mm. Um, I want to read uh, a passage, um, okay. one of my favorite passages in the book, uh, really thought, really thought provoking in the prologue, which really sets things up beautifully. Uh, you are... Um, Referring back to Giambattista Vico, mm-hmm. and you say, and also to the Larry scholar Robert Harrison, in the new science, 
you write, an exploration of the origins and development of human society, the 18th century philosopher Giambattista Vico observed that burial in the earth, humare, gives meaning and a name, humanitas, to humanity, thus marking one of the universal institutions of civilization. The literary scholar Robert Harrison has extrapolated from Vico's insight to show, with examples stretching from ancient grave sites to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, that Quote, humans bury not simply to achieve closure and effect a separation from the dead, but also, and above all, to humanize the ground on which they build their worlds and found their histories, end quote. Um, how do you find those things expressing, this obviously is a story about that, isn't it? I mean, it's a story about what people do with the, the bones of a, of a hero. Yeah. Uh, and how they affect how the bones themselves continue to affect history. Yeah. Uh, um, ha have you come to any sort of deeper thoughts about that since you wrote that? You know, it, it's one I come back to periodically. And, and you know, I, Robert Harrison's book, I think it's Dominion of the Dead, uh, mm -hmm. something I read probably well before I started this project, but it kind of stayed with me um, precisely because of how he was talking about Vico's insight, right? That burial. Yeah. And I, I, I'm no judge. I can't tell you, you know, the philology behind this. If, if Vico well, it's, all, it's all crazy, but it's yeah. like a lot of Vico, yeah. but, it's still, it's, it's also, yeah. but it's also brilliant. And I, it's, it's like Vico, you and know? It, and if I'm remembering the passage from Vico correctly, I might be off a little bit, but I think he's, he's pairing it with, I think, marriage and maybe just religious observation and burial. Mm -hmm. I think those three he's saying are these kind of fundamental um, bedrock foundations of, civilization of, of the human civilization yeah. at some level um and it's you know and again it's 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 so physical right this idea that the earth uh umare umando burying is basically part of what makes us human burying in, in the dead and and i guess no matter what the ritual is right if we go back to classical worlds different rituals the cremation etc you know funeral pyres but the, the way the rituals we have for the separation uh, between life and death uh, often do define, right, in some ways, yeah, a society, yeah. civilization. And it's one reason that, you know, you and I were talking uh, before I, I, in, in the green room <laughs> before uh, <laughs> how we both love purgatory. And one of the reasons I always identify so much with Dante's purgatory, maybe perhaps especially as I get a bit older, is it's all about the reciprocity of the living and the dead. And, and, yes. and Dante even extends it beyond what the theologians of the day does because he has, he has of course, we have the humans praying for the souls in purgatory the way my grandmother would have done when she lit candles in a church you know, many years ago. Um, but Dante actually has the souls of people in purgatory praying for people back on earth, which Thomas Aquinas says can't happen because they're not, they're not perfected yet, that that shouldn't happen. Dante's saying, I don't care what Thomas Aquinas thinks. <laughs> um, here I'm going to break ranks a little bit and actually establish. The whole Divine Comedy is obviously about this on some level, but I think mm -hmm. it's most poignant in purgatory where you have the soul still nostalgic, right? You have these beautiful passages when they're still missing and nostalgic uh, for their earthly companions and their earthly lives, even as they desire God and are looking forward to heaven. They're caught in that sort of embrace, that tension. And so I think that's that's where that, I think, strikes me as, as relevant, yeah. you know, and that, connection. That, that gives, a, also that gives a, a particular emphasis because I, I believe it's an inferno, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the damned, they are in some way nostalgia. They are hungry for news of Earth, but can't discern mm. Earth anymore right. in the way that in purgatory. And of course, they have no hope for the future, right? Right. As well, mm. but it's 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 they are completely trapped. Mm. They are without past. They are without past. They are without history. Only nostalgia. Yeah. Um, 
and they were without a future yeah. as well. Yeah. And they can't see the present, right? They can only see things. And they can't see the present. Stuff. Yes. And, and, and you know, you've got me thinking in that way about that maybe differently than I had in the past, but perhaps that's one of the parts of their contrapasso, their punishment. It is. Yeah. I think, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, have we finished talking about speaking about uses and relating to the past? Uh, there are a lot of people that show up. The, the, the person I appreciate the most in the book, there are a lot of mm. just sort of lamentable people in the book. <laughs> but the person I appreciate the most, other than Dante himself, is Antonio Fusconi. Oh, he's wonderful. Can you tell briefly about this man with a very complicated relationship to the past and, yeah. and how he pursued his... Huh. Noble yeah. life, yeah. may I say, a noble life, right? A noble life, and and the, the simplest, one of the simplest characters, a simplest, man. and yeah, yeah I mean, yes, uh, he's known as the the, the Italian is the Sentinella di Dante, the the watchman, I think, of Dante. I, I guess today we might say he was the custodian of the tomb uh, for many years. Uh, I think into the 1960s, uh, when he was probably given some some medal of honor from the president of the republic and, and, and got some coverage then. But yeah, he's a character who popped up several times in the book. So I think the first time probably. Uh, this might have been around the 1921 ceremonies. In again, that would have been the 600th anniversary of Dante's death, uh, when they were celebrating both uh, both Dante, but also just three years after the end of the war. So the military had a large presence. He was a war veteran. He was wounded, uh, so he walked with a limp. He had, he had fought in some of the fiercest battles, and he was just devoted to Dante. Divine Comedy was like the Bible to him, as it was to many of the soldiers on the front. And so when it came time to pick somebody, let's say, I think a, the bell was donated, this famous bell was donated to Ravenna by the communes, some of the communes uh, of Italy, and they had to figure out who was going to toll the bell, and it seemed like an honor that should be bestowed on him. But I think what struck me even more at that moment was they had to find somebody to watch over the remains at night when they were being examined yeah. and exhumed. They didn't want to take a chance that somebody would steal them again. And, you know, instead of somebody, instead of having some powerful person or a powerful military guard, uh, they had him sleep there during the night, uh, you know, with basically as if you were at a, a wake uh, with, the, with the remains of Dante until they were reburied several uh, days later. And then, you know, this, this, this is the wonderful thing about research, right? Things pop up sometimes where you least expect to find it. In a very little known literary journal out of Ball State, that's in Indiana, I think, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I found this piece by an English teacher, uh, and he was a poet. He has one book of poetry, I think. I've looked at it. Uh, his name is Walden Garrett, and he wrote a little piece for this journal out of Ball State, and he talked about meeting Antonio Fusconi after World War II, this was, so a little bit uh, later. And he had this interview that becomes a major source for, for my material in, in, in one of the chapters, where Fusconi describes the horror of, of the war as the bombs were dropping, the Allied planes were bombing uh, Ravenna, uh, trying not to hit the, uh, you know, the, the historic sites like the tomb and the famous churches, but as, as we can imagine, not always being very accurate. Um, and then, of course, even when hostilities accelerated, the Germans were not taking any account of civilians or buildings. And so the Allies sometimes uh, had to destroy or at least uh, take chances on destroying some structures. Anyway, they decide they have to, uh, they have to get the bones out of the little uh, the little uh, temple, and Fusconi is the one who tells us in some detail how they did that. He he and some other people uh, did it during the night, and they buried them behind the chapel. Uh, and they actually put in a decoy uh, casket again. So clever, and not because of, <laughs> not because of an Allied bomb striking it, right? But because the Nazis yeah. were coming, right? Italy was yeah. occupied, and the Nazis were famously uh, pillaging and taking famous artwork. And they thought, okay, it wouldn't be unthinkable for them to come here and try to take Dante's bones back. 
And so the bones stayed there. We find today there's a plaque and there's the mound where they were buried outside of the little uh, temple uh, marking those uh, those months from 1944 to just after the war. And Fusconi is one of the one of the sources there. So just a wonderful character, I think, for both of uh, you. Yeah. Two 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 things struck me in, yeah. in describing of him. He he slept there that night with a a, a blanket mm-hmm. over over his lap right. as he as he maintained vigil this nineteen twenty one, um, and he didn't tell his mother because right, right. he was staying with her, but he didn't tell her where it was because he was going to keep it a secret. And he uh, seemed to have been an irascible old gentleman, mm. uh, but he never took a tip. Right. Right, right. Even from heads of state who came to visit, right. he never accepted any compensation right. for this. That's a great thing. He was, and I was I, at some point I wrote, and I think in my margin, he was living like a monk. Right, right. Uh, he was like a monk of Dante. Right, right. But his devotion was just unshakable. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, another character I liked a lot was the Angelo Grillo character, the cricket, the man, the sacristan who is the one who is sleeping off his inebriation probably in an area <laughs> outside Dante's tomb. And he has a vision, a dream that Dante comes to him uh, from this corner. And it turns out to be the exact spot where they find the bones a few weeks later. And that was just a great, a great character. I thought as well. Well, Guy Rafa, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. My pleasure. Anytime now. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.